Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 21st, 2018. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Just the Facts, Ma'am. The show began with his deep, monotone voice and that same opening monologue each week. This is the city, Los Angeles, California. I work here, I carry a badge. The main character who spoke that opening monologue was Sergeant Joe Friday. The show was Dragnet. You've pointed out your age if you know Dragnet. <laughs> the show premiered in 1949 as a radio drama and then ran as a television series for 10 years, ending in 1959. When I was a toddler, it was given a new life, and I watched on a fuzzy black and white picture. What's a black and white picture? Until it went off the air in 1970 the year I entered the first grade. I was captivated by Sergeant Joe Friday and his sidekick, Officer Bill Gannon. They were sober and serious servants of the city. They were dedicated officers of the law. As I remember it, they always solved the puzzle, always got the bad guy. I say, as I remember it, the truth is, I remember almost nothing about it. I was in the first grade actually makes me wonder if I saw some reruns somewhere along the, the way. I can't imagine remembering anything that I saw in, as a kid in a kindergartner on TV. All the memories I have from my early childhood in the mid-1960s, can it be the mid-1960s, all those memories are black and white these days, and they're getting ever fuzzier. I have an aura of feelings about those memories, but if I heard that voice again, I'd be right there with Sergeant Joe Friday. Like seeing clips of Walter Cronkite or hearing the sound of helicopters in reports about Vietnam or running across a headline with the word Watergate in it. Hippie clothes and Beatle music and the names Patty Hearst and Charles Manson. Those all take me back to a feeling I remember more than any details I can recall. So it was no surprise that I learned this week that one of my specific memories about Jack Webb, who played Friday, Joe Friday, one of my distinct memories is completely false. I would have sworn to you that I could have heard those exact words when the detective would interview a female witness invariably presented as being excitedly caught up in giving all the non-essential details of the crime and Friday would stop her sternly but kindly and would say, just the facts, ma'am. You can hear it too, just the facts, ma'am. Well, all-knowing Wikipedia says that the great sergeant, Joe Friday, never uttered those words in a single episode. 
A radio personality named Stan Freeberg made the phrase famous in a parody of the show that he called St. George and the Dragonette. Released on Capitol Records. Young people, that's those black things that had <laughs> rings in them. We used to listen to music on those things. It was released on Capitol Records and the parody hit number one for four weeks in 1953. So I distinctly remember Joe Friday saying, just the facts, ma'am, even though apparently I never heard the words spoken. Just the facts. Even if Joe Friday never said it, just the facts has become an important assumption underlying the epistemology of our culture. Epistemology is just the 25 cent word for the study of knowledge. What do you know and how do you know it? What can you trust? What can you know? What can you live by? Epistemology is the academic study of our belief systems. Now, I'm not sure how much the average citizen feels this in everyday life. There are large segments of our society that are shielded from, if not completely unaware of the intellectual movements that shape a culture. But intellectual movements shape our culture. And this epistemological shift is undoubtedly part of the angst underlying the tumultuous climate of conflict in our world today. Yesterday's women's march through America's streets is not unrelated to a shift in our epistemology. What we know and how we can know it and what we believe and why we believe it. Let me offer a very brief history lesson to put this in perspective. Several of you have thanked me for my timelines over the last couple of weeks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a little timeline, uh, a little more recent than that. In 1953, Nicolaus Copernicus published a book entitled On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, which declared that the earth actually revolved around the sun. Imagine that, not the other way around. It was Copernicus's world-altering view that Galileo adopted, resulting in his excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church for promoting a dangerous heresy because this scientific theory implied an entirely new epistemology. I hope you can put that in perspective today. Scientific theories that challenge our belief system. You got it? What does it mean, way back then, what does it mean, the church was saying, if we are not, in fact, the center of the universe? Many historians identify the publication of Copernicus's book and the further development of the scientific method of study that came out of that. They, develop, they, they identify this as the onset of the scientific revolution, which views the world in terms of observable facts. How do you know something is true? Well, you don't just believe it because the Bible says it. You test it empirically. And if you can prove it, then you can believe it. And if you can't even test it, then it's clearly not true, much less trustable or believable. 
Just the facts, ma'am. That's all there is in this world. The only source of belief, according to a scientific worldview. Now, the beautiful result of the scientific method is, well, it's our entire world. Electric lighting and conditioned air, commercial aviation and cardiothoracic surgery, moon landings and industrial automation, intergalactic space exploration, and the emerging world of artificial intelligence, computer-enhanced everything. None of the discoveries that have made our world more comfortable as well as more compassionate, none of that would be possible without exploration and the inventions and innovations that result from an epistemology of just the facts, man. Now the sad result of the scientific method is, well, it's our entire world too. Our society and societies around the globe are divided by a culture war, as we have identified it in the U.S., the opposing sides of which are largely based on competing epistemologies. Most, if not all, of our contentious issues, issues that are dividing our country, paralyzing our dialogue, literally shutting down our government, most of our divisive issues are based on differing belief systems, epistemologies. What can we know about climate change, and how can we know it? Are the rights and the treatment of homosexuals and women to be based on the best understandings of medical and psychological science, or on a wooden, so-called literal reading of the Bible? What is the basis of a protectionist ideology with self-interested implications for economy? and diplomacy, and immigration. What assumptions underlie that ideology? What is the motivating epistemology? One of the sad ironies in this culture war is that many people of faith have made religion their science. And many secular people have made science their religion. Many people of faith have made religion their science, and many secular people have made science their religion. And both of those worldviews see truth as a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. It's just the facts. Or it's who cares about the facts. Both positions are misguided. Of course we must live by what we know we can know by what we do know to be true because we have tested it. This world was not created in six days. Our science has proven that. We must let the facts guide us. Any culture that cannot face facts, any culture that cannot live with the truth of those facts will be hopelessly out of touch imprisoned by its own comfortable prejudices and the fears that constantly retreat backward to some so-called golden past. Let's make it like it used to be. Let's keep it like it was. 
Let's don't change. We're afraid of the future. We must be determined to learn all we can, to know all we can know, all we can know about our evolutionary past, about our complex sexualities, about continued automation and artificial intelligence, about all that empirical observation can tell us about archaeology and anthropology and sociology and geopolitical ideologies, even what science can tell us about theology. We must not be afraid of the future, of where the future will take us, when we are honest about the facts. For any people, culture, nation, or religion to survive requires the courage to face each new day, welcoming the change that always comes and welcoming it with enthusiasm. There are two ways to think about this knowing what we can't know. On a personal level, we must be aware of what we know that we do not know. I do not know what it is like to be homeless and living in a metropolitan city. I do not know what it is like to be among the working poor, always scraping to get by, never having a day of vacation or enjoying a little splurge, never being able to relax because the future is not a worry. I don't know what it's like to not know that. I do not know what it's like to be in the minority. Not yet. I'm going to find out. I don't know that yet. I do not know what it is like to feel the oppression of a culture that still quietly justifies the sexual abuse of women from the highest halls of government and corporate culture and the church. People in power are abusive. And the few headline cases that we have seen recently, that's a good start, but that's hardly evidence yet that we are really taking seriously the depth of our sin. I know I do not know these things, which is why I look for every opportunity I can find to be with the poor and the oppressed and the outcast. Not to rescue them, but to listen to and to learn from the least of these, which is a phrase our society often uses in accusation more than in compassion. This week, I delivered some furniture that you donated to the apartment that is the new home of those 10 children who were burned out of their place before Christmas. One house, 10 children. Not one house, one small apartment, 10 children. Oh my. What you can learn just from driving into that housing complex with an empathetic heart. Now, if you drive into that housing complex with a judgmental heart, you'll learn something different. But there's a lot you can learn from just driving into that housing complex with an empathetic heart. And if for only a few moments, being there to feel the despair and the pain and the hopelessness, being there to see the cycle of poverty that is intrinsic to an entire neighborhood. 
what you can learn about what you don't know. This morning, at 7.45, I preached at our Hope Chapel for Homeless Men. As I've told you so many times before, I need to be with them. I need to hear their stories. I just need to look into their eyes. I need them a lot more than they need me. Yesterday, I joined about a dozen church friends for another women's march in Charlotte. As is usually the case when I get out of my comfort zone to join a movement of protest, I did not share the message delivered in some of the vulgar and angry signs. I did not share all of the religious or political sentiments of many who filled Charlotte streets yesterday. But I was there because I need to hear that pain, experience that concern firsthand, be with those who feel threatened by the hand of a government that is supposed to offer liberty and justice in equal measure for all of its citizens. I need to be there because I can learn. There is a lot I know that I don't know, but I know I can learn. I know I must learn, and being there is an essential step in my education. That's on a personal level. On a societal level, we must not be so narrow-minded as to think all that is important. All we can know is what we can see and measure and test by science. Houston Smith the world-renowned scholar of comparative religions, has sarcastically referred to the Enlightenment, that's the era that was spawned by the scientific revolution. Houston Smith has referred to the Enlightenment as the disastrous Enlightenment because he believes for all the undeniable enlightening this era offered to the world, it has also blinded an increasingly secular culture to another valid and important way of knowing. Faith says there is another way of knowing. It is knowing by way of trusting, which is at root what the word faith means, pistis in Greek, trust. It is knowing by way of trusting. It is knowing by way of intuition and revelation. It is knowing by way of the Spirit of God who guides by the still small voice of warm inspiration, not the cold rational voice of dispassionate reason. Faith in the practice of good religion does not disparage reason, does not contradict logic, but faith is not willing to limit the meaning and measure of life by only what we can really understand. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Where would we be without hope? That scripture goes on to say, who hopes for what is seen? which is just another way of saying if you could test it and measure it and prove it, why would you need hope? It would just be fact. 
not faith. And one thing we know for sure about the human being is that when we lose hope, all is lost. Hope cannot be measured, but it must not be dismissed. Our text for today is from John's highly theological gospel, whose approach is different from the other gospels, but whose purpose is the same, to share and encourage faith. That is, the love of God by the way of Jesus. In this short story, Philip finds Nathanael and tries to convince him that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. But Nathanael can't be convinced. He's skeptical. What good could possibly come from that little pothole of a city called Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Then Jesus commends the faith of Nathanael, who wants to know how Jesus knows him at all. And Jesus says, well, I saw you under the fig tree, which is just a strange comment, isn't it? What could Jesus possibly know just from seeing a man standing under a fig tree? And what could Nathanael possibly know of Jesus from the few facts he has amassed in this little episode. What could he know? Almost nothing. Yet John's gospel has the audacity to say, yet in this moment, Nathaniel has a moment of clarity. Jesus is the Son of God. That's not a statement of fact. This may be John's very point. It's not by knowledge that Nathaniel confesses his faith. It's by another way of knowing altogether. It's by an epistemology called faith. And this way of knowing and the living that comes from it is so much more exciting and so much more daring and so much more challenging. Faith saves us from a safe and boring life of just the facts. Faith is knowing what you do not know, maybe knowing there are some things we will never know, and it is taping, taking the leap into the abundant life Jesus offers anyway. May it be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.